following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Hi, good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's uh, Chris. I'm actually the youth pastor. Um, we're so glad that you guys could join us for our worship today. And um, being that this is our, one of our um, family worship services of this year, um, I have the privilege to be able to bring the word um, to our congregation this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, where we're looking at verses 1 through 11. And if you don't, Luckily for you, we're living in the 21st century. We'll, we'll have it um, put up on the projector for you. Um, so this week, um, I watched an amazing basketball game. <laughs> and uh, for those of you guys who are college basketball fans, you probably know which game I'm talking about. It was maybe one of the most exciting basketball games that I've ever watched. Um, so Duke, who's number two in the nation right now, played against um, Louisville, who's ranked number 16. And right out of the gate, Louisville took... A very early lead and they played with a ton of energy a lot of tenacity and Duke for those of you guys who follow sports know you guys know that Duke's basketball team is probably one of the most hated college sports teams not just basketball teams but college sports teams in the country possibly the most hated college basketball team or college sports teams and so um, I'm sure lots of people were very excited to see them fall right so Louisville number 16 was had taken a lead Later in the first half, um, going into, the, into halftime, they actually went into halftime with a nine-point lead, and they, were, they had all the momentum going for them. And coming out of the halftime, um, people were wondering whether or not Duke could come to play, right? They were playing with pretty low energy. They looked like they were kind of out of their, out of their rhythm. And like I said, Duke is one of the most hated sports uh, programs in the country because of this man, Coach K. He's been the coach there since 1980, and he's the most winningest basketball coach. As of last night, he's the, most winning, uh, the winningest basketball coach in any level of whether male or female basketball in college. He has 1,123 wins under his belt. And he's led Duke's team to five national championships and 12 Final Four appearances in his time there. If you can't tell already, that game between Duke and Louisville was exciting for me because I'm a Duke fan, right? And I'm not quite one of the Cameron crazies, one of those people that paints their face all blue and, and goes to the games in the winter, shirtless and stuff like that. But I do enjoy watching my team play. So back to the game coming out of halftime, we were down nine. Louisville hit a quick three in the first 20 seconds of the second half. So we're down over, uh, over 10 points. And it just looked like for the next 10 minutes, like Duke was not going to have any chance in this game. 10 minutes into the second half, we were down by 23 points with just 10 minutes left to go. It was the biggest deficit that this team, who's number two in the nation right now, had faced all year long. And then Coach K called a timeout. And he switched to a zone defense and full court press on every possession, and then everything changed. You can tell that because I'm telling you the story, this, this ends up happily for me, right? Not, not so much for the people that don't like Duke, but ends up happily for me. In the final 10 minutes of the game, Duke outscored Louisville 35 to 10. It seemed like every possession they were stealing the ball, going back for, for, um, for a layup or an easy dunk. In that final minute of the game, Duke graduates and Duke basketball fans all across the nation were glued to the television sets watching this team play. And Cam Reddish, one of our three-star freshmen, hit one of the final two free throws. 
And then hit the second one to put us up two points. And then Louisville had the ball with 14 seconds left. They didn't have any more timeouts left. And then we watched them miss that glorious final shot, rimming out to steal the win for our team. As Duke basketball fans, all of us who were watching this game had one heart, one vision, one desire. We were united over this silly game to see our team come out with a win. And I know that this is not a great illustration. Maybe it was just a chance for me to brag about Duke. But, <laughs> but to a much greater and a much holier degree, Paul, in our text in Philippians chapter 2 today, writes to the Philippian church about unity. What it means to be united, to have our hearts bound together, and to form a real community. And as he's writing to the Philippian church, he writes that this common bond is from some sort of a shared experience for us. Just like most of the people that are Duke fans are fans of Duke because they have some connection there. They either went there for undergrad or they went to grad school there or they have a family member who went there. Most people who don't have that sort of a connection don't really care for them very much. There's some kind of a common experience, a shared experience that we have that binds us together. And so he details for us in these first 11 verses in chapter 2 of Philippians um, what that unity is and what it looks like. Today's message is titled, A Family Built on Love. And I'll tell you right now at the very beginning, so for all of you kids that are sitting in the room and you can't really pay attention for the next 40 minutes, you guys can just take this and then go to sleep if you want, okay? I'm just kidding. Don't fall asleep on me. <laughs> um, the thing that binds all of our hearts together, from the youngest to the oldest in this room, are that we are all sinners in need of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We are all sinners in need of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why when we gather in a room like this with kids who are under the age of one all the way through to, I don't know, however old somebody is in this room, that we can have a common bond. We can come here and worship the same God in the same place, sing the same songs, and have that sort of a shared experience. We were all objects of wrath who have been welcomed by our Father as children of grace. And so now we're being called then in response to that, to live as children of grace. And that's it. It's as simple as that. And if we could just do this easily, just live this out, the fact that we are sinners who have been redeemed, who are children of grace now, if we could just live this out, I wouldn't have to stand here and preach, and we wouldn't have to consult our Bibles, and we wouldn't have to go to God in prayer. But it's not that easy to actually do, right? You all know that it's, it's not easy to live into that identity as children of grace. So let's read our passage and see what Paul has to say to us in this word today. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Would you bow your heads with me and pray before we uh, dive into this word today? Father, we pray for that sort of unity in our church. We see so many places, um, so many churches these days where um, Satan has got a, f- a foothold, where there are these seeds sown of, of disunity and of hatred and of um, disagreement and of pride and just refusing to forgive and to love on one another the way that you've called us to. Father, as we look into this passage today, we pray that you would um, pierce our hearts, Um, each of us that is sitting here in this room. God, we pray that we would recognize that this begins with us. It is a work that you are doing in our hearts for us to be able to learn to be selfless, to look on others and, and and to place higher value on somebody else than I do on myself, to be able to love the people in my church, no matter who that is, no matter who you bring through those doors, for us to be able to love on them with the love of Christ that we've received from you. God, would you shape Mano community to be that sort of a church? Help us to be that kind of a light in this dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first part of this passage, Philippians chapter 2, um, it starts with all these if statements. It says, therefore, if you have any encouragement or an if any comfort from love, if any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. But all those ifs um, are actually not really, if you look at chapter 1 of Philippians, you can see in the context that it's not really talking about like, maybe this is true, maybe it's not. So if it is, then you should do this. But if it's not, then you don't have to, right? It's very clear in the way that Paul has already been talking to the Philippians in his opening chapter that he knows that these things are true. We do have encouragement in Christ. We do have comfort from his love and a fellowship, a partnership in the spirit and mercy and compassion. And therefore, he's saying like almost like if I were teaching somebody math, right? So some of you kids here that maybe don't know multiplication yet, I might, if I were teaching you math, I might say, okay, well, two times three is like adding two three times. So it'd be like 2 plus 2 plus 2 is 2 times 3. So I would say, so if 2 plus 3 plus 3, or 2 plus 2 plus 2 is 6, then 2 times 3 is also 6, right? So it's kind of like that. Paul has been talking about like, okay, these things are all true. So now if, or because these things are all true, then what I want you to do in light of all of those truths, in light of all these things that we've received from Christ— that I want you to make my joy complete by being like-minded. And that is the crux of this entire passage. You see, saying, look, the thing that would make me the happiest person in the world as your spiritual father, as somebody who loves and cares for your church, is if you would just be like-minded. What does being like-minded mean? He explains it a little bit further in the next couple of lines. He says, look, being like-minded is having the same love, being one in spirit. Actually, the word that's used there is actually talking about like your souls are together, right? Your souls are intermingled. Being of one mind, like thinking along the same patterns and having the same goal, having your mind set on the same thing. Be like-minded. If you were just to be like-minded, you would make my joy complete. 
This unity that Paul is calling the church to is a unity that he's saying flows from all that Christ has done for us. Because of these things that we've received from Christ, then we have the power and the ability to have that sort of unity in our church. Because we are sinners, but we have encouragement and comfort and fellowship and mercy and compassion in Christ, we can have this whole being unity with one another. But it seems like a lot for us to ask and say like, okay, well, because I've been encouraged, I'm a sinner, I've been encouraged, I've been comforted, I've received mercy. And so because of that, then all of a sudden, then every other person that walks into this room, I'm going to agree with them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to just be together with them all the time and be happy in this community. Because we know that that doesn't really work that way, right? We can fully understand, we could have experienced the love of Christ, the encouragement of Christ, and still not have that just be a natural result. So how does Paul expect this to actually happen? What is the secret to unlocking the power for that kind of a community? Well, the key to the whole thing is grace. Surprise, surprise, right? We're in the church talking about grace. The key to this whole thing is grace. All of those things that we receive from God are his gifts to us. They're the things that we didn't earn. It's the things that, as sinners, we shouldn't have gotten encouragement from and we should have received judgment. We shouldn't have received comfort from his love. We should have realized that, man, we, are, we have totally disdained the love that God has already given to us. We shouldn't have been given compassion and mercy. We should have received punishment. So because everything that we've gotten from God, from, through Christ, is grace, then he's saying, look, if you were just to have grace among you, then there would be this unity. So what does that unity look like? He goes on to explain that to us. Verses 3 to 4, he says, look, in order for you to have unity, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What does that mean? He means... Stop doing things just for yourself. Stop looking out for your own good and thinking, okay, this is going to be what gets me ahead or makes me look good in front of other people, right? Don't let that be what dominates your thinking, but rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Value others above yourselves. And that word value is really important here because he's not saying, look, you need to recognize that you're a sinner. Everyone else in this room is better than you, right? He's not saying that the truth is that they are more valuable than you are, and so live like it. Rather, he's saying, all of you are on the same playing field. You are all sinners in need of grace and who have received grace. And so I want you, even though you're here with them, to put them up here, to consider them to be greater than you are. In your decisions, in the way that you live, in your actions, in your words to them, Put them up, lift them up, and let them be higher than you in your own mind. It doesn't change the reality about where you stand in comparison to somebody else, but it says, look, in your thinking, I want you to consider these people, value them higher than yourself. Think of them as more important. Think of their needs and their desires as more urgent than your own. You trade selfishness for selflessness. No longer have this attitude of looking out for number one, but value others as being higher, better, bigger, more important than yourself. And that next line that he has after that, where he says, 
Look, not, not looking only to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. I remember a sermon back when I was in college where my college pastor preached on this, and it struck me because he told me before I knew anything about Greek or was able to, to look at the original text or anything like that, he said, look, one of the most interesting things about this phrase in this passage is that in the actual text, it doesn't say anything about interests. It doesn't say look out for other interests than, and not your own, right? It just says looking, not looking out for your own blank, but looking out for others blank. There's no word there. It's not like look out for their needs or for their wants or for their, um, their benefits or for their comforts. It's all of that. He left it intentionally like not specified, right? He said, look, anything that the other person may want or need or, or whatever, that all of those things to you, you should count as being more important than your own stuff. Now, this seems like this could be a recipe for disaster if we just all are like going around like denying everything for ourselves. I'm never going to sleep, never going to eat because everything that I have, I need to just give to everybody else. But Paul here is saying, look, it's not only your own. We always will look out for ourselves. We will take care of ourselves when we need to, right? But the, the deeper temptation for us is not look out for other people around us, to not consider what they're, what they're thinking or what they're feeling. And I'll be honest with you guys, as I was preparing this message, the, um, probably the hardest thing about preparing this and about preaching this to you right now is what it means about what I have to do when I go home, <laughs> right? Because in marriage, or as a, as a parent, this is maybe the hardest thing to come to grips with about the gospel. That because God was selfless toward me, because he showed grace to me, that I now need to be selfless and gracious toward others, especially my family, right? Because for me, I know in my head that this probably means if I'm looking out for the needs of others or for the good of others, for their interests, not my own, that that means I would do the dishes a lot more often than I do, right? It means that I would probably change my baby's diapers a lot more often than I do. It would mean that in the middle of the night when I hear Avery screaming, that I'm not going to pretend like I'm still sleeping and I didn't hear it. It's going to mean that when Grayson doesn't listen to me, that I'm not sitting there thinking about how disrespected I feel or how much I'm embarrassed about the way that he's acting in public. But I'll think about his good, about what he's feeling, why he is being disobedient in that moment, why he is frustrated by the things I'm, I'm asking him to do. One of the things that might hit home the hardest for some of you parents, especially on a Sunday morning, is that sometimes this means that as adults, we need to stop being in such a hurry and rushing our kids so much, <laughs> right? When our kids wake up on Sunday morning and we wake them up at like 8.30 or 8 o'clock, whatever time it is, they're like, all right, let's go, let's go, let's go. You got to go. We're already late. I woke up a little bit late, so you got to go brush your teeth in five seconds and then wash your face and get your clothes on and stop making this so long for me. And we got so frustrated with them trying to feel like you're getting in the way of me getting to church on time. If it weren't for you, I would be there right at 9.30. But now we're going to be five minutes late. <laughs> when we look out for the good of others, when we think about, man, what must this feel like for every week for, for my child to feel like their parent is so angry with them because they don't brush their teeth fast enough or because the parent woke them up late? 
to consider others' needs above our own. This is so counter to everything that is in us. It is so counter to all of our natural instincts as sinners. Because we always want to look out for ourselves. It is so easy for us to extend grace to ourselves or to think about what I want and what I need. But we need to learn to empathize with others. To value them higher. To try to see things from their perspective. And that is grace in action. That is the grace that we've received from God coming out as grace that we can extend to others. Because, like I said, it's not that they are actually more important or more valuable than you are, but you're going to consider it to be so. And so you are giving them something that they may not have earned or deserved. Maybe your child is being disobedient, or maybe your friend is being a bad friend and talking behind your back, but you are still going to consider them higher than you are. You are still going to extend that grace to them. The second way that we see this grace played out is that we give up our rights for the sake of others. Give up my rights for the sake of others. Paul transitions here, and there's a lot of stuff written and said about this particular passage because this is one of the most, like, maybe the key passage on Christology about who Jesus is in the New Testament that's been debated in New Testament theology for the past, like, 10, 15, 20 years. We're not going to dive into all of that, but Paul points to this description of Christ because he's saying, look, if you want to be like-minded, like he asked us to do, what you should do is look to the mindset of Christ. You should have the same mindset amongst yourselves in your relationship with one another that Christ had toward us. And so what did Christ do? He says, look, Jesus was in very nature God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Other translations might say something to be grasped, right? Something to, to take a stranglehold of and say, no, this is mine. I have a right to do this. This is what, what rightfully belongs to me. And so you cannot take that away. I'm going to claim it. Jesus didn't do that. And rather, he said, look, I am God. And you are sinners. But because I am God, I have under my authority the ability to lay down my divinity for your sake. To set aside my wrath. To set aside what I would rightfully be judging you for. And instead, be gracious. He didn't look at us in our predicament and say, too bad, so sad. But instead, he said, this equality with God, my deity, my godness, can be used to benefit you. Basically, Jesus didn't look at his position as God as something to be exploited for his own personal gain. He didn't claim his rights. Rather, he emptied himself. And though he was the God of the universe, the creator of everything, the perfect, holy son of God, he emptied himself and became a man, a servant, a sacrifice of the most humiliating humiliating kind, and died on the cross for us. And so because of his deity, he's not the one who only benefits, but we benefit as well. And this is the way that it works in our world too. It's always the people who have the privileges, who have the rights, who have the power, who are able to take those things 
and lay them down for others. And so Jesus, in his teaching to the disciples, also keeps on trying to, to remind them, look, the kingdom that I'm inaugurating here, the kingdom that I'm inviting you to, is totally upside down. It's where the greatest will become the least, and the least will become the greatest. And so I want you, if you are somebody who is in the majority, somebody who has the power, somebody who is in a position of authority, to use that authority not for your own selfish gain, not to exploit it, or to get ring every little bit of it that you can, but to use it for the benefit of others. To say, look, because I am your boss, I will not exploit you, but I will be generous to you. Because I have authority over you as a parent, as an older sibling, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a leader, that I will use that authority to be able to show you the love of Christ by serving you. Again, this is just another, another way to view this idea of putting others above ourselves, right? Being humble, allowing um, their needs to come first. And up to now, it might sound like this message is like pretty unpleasant. It's like, man, you're just asking me to like give up all my rights and to do everything that everybody else needs and wants. And <laughs> what am I going to get out of this, right? How is this going to, how am I ever going to last in this life? living that way. How can anybody be this sacrificial all the time? And let me be honest, that that is a very, very good question. And it is one that we need to ask ourselves. And it is one that, for me, makes it so that a lot of times I don't feel like doing these things. I don't feel like living for the benefit of others. Well, let me assure you that when Paul wrote this to the Philippians and what God intended for us through this word is not for this to be a huge burden on our shoulders, for us to feel like, man, I just need to live this life and like never have any joy and, and everything that I'm going to do is just going to be for somebody else's benefit and, and I guess I just have to suffer for the rest of my life. In fact, the book of Philippians is, is often called the epistle of joy. Paul speaks about joy and rejoicing over and over and over again through it. And even in this, remember, at the very beginning, Paul had told the, the, the Philippians, look, I want you to do this so that my joy would be complete. And so Paul is saying, look, because Christ has set the example for us, for what it looks like to consider others first, to give up our rights for their sakes, and he doesn't just set an example like, hey, this is what it should look like, and so go and do it. But he's, he's actually done it for us. We've experienced it firsthand. We've experienced the benefits of somebody doing that on our behalf. And so because Christ has done that for us, then now he is telling us, look, you know what gladness that there is in the receiving end of that. And now I want you to know what gladness there is on the giving side of it as well. I want you to know that there is a greater joy and glory in serving and in sacrificing than you would ever realize without having done it. That you will find a greater joy and glory in serving and sacrificing. Because even for Jesus, one of the interesting things is in this passage, it doesn't close with, okay, so Jesus became a man, he died on the cross, and now he's just the, the, the sacrifice that, that was trampled on, and, and we're all lifted up, and he's still way down there suffering on our behalf. But because of his suffering, what does this passage say? It says in verses 9 through 11, Therefore, 
God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. And Jesus knew that this was going to happen before he went up. We don't have to pretend like he was like totally oblivious, like I'm just going to do this, even if nothing else good happens, comes out of this, like, I'm just going to do it for their sake. No, Jesus knew. He told his disciples, look, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die on the cross, and then God is going to lift me up. And knowing that full well, he went to the cross knowing that he was going to be glorified. In Hebrews chapter 12, they, the, the author of Hebrews says this more explicitly. He says, look, Jesus, because of the joy that was set before him, went to the cross on our behalf. It was for that joy that he went to the cross. And so on our first reading of, of this passage, it might look like, oh, so you're talking about like, okay, so if I serve other people, then God is going to give me all these good things. So I'm really like just like buying God's blessing by kind of sacrificing little things, but I'm going to get better things over here, right? This tit for tat, this transactional relationship with God. But it's not that, okay? It's not that. And here's one of the small clues in this text for why I know that this is not that. Aside from everything else the scripture says, which also affirms that it's not that, in this particular passage, when it says that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that word for gave, lots of other places where it occurs, it's, it's really talking about forgiveness or giving grace to somebody, right? And so really what happened here was that Jesus sacrificed on our behalf. He died on the cross for us. He set aside his rights. He considered our needs above his own. And then he said, look, God, I'm going to do this. And then God graced on him the name that is above every name. This also was an act of grace. It was something that Jesus wasn't saying, like, look, now pay me my wage. Because I've done the work, now I've earned this, and so I'm, now I'm going to claim this right. He's not saying that. But God is the God who is in the business, and this is his ethic. This is the way that he operates. This is his character to reward this kind of selflessness. All of Jesus' teaching throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, and, and as he was walking with his disciples for those three years, was all about this. Being others-minded, learn to serve, be humble, think about the needs of others. Even in the Old Testament, the Jewish law was all about, like, look out for the widows, look out for the orphans, think about the people that are underprivileged, and consider their needs and be good to them. And in all of that, God's promise to us always is not that this is going to be like, okay, if you do good things, then I'm going to reward you in, in like, in a comparable amount. But to say, look, I'm asking you to do this because when you do this, this is what shalom, the kingdom, looks like. And I am a God whose character, in my character, I love to reward and to bless that kind of selflessness. This mutual submission that we've been called to leads to mutual exaltation. We're called to highly esteem others above ourselves. Jesus considers us above himself. God lifts Jesus up, and we exalt and glory in God. One of the places where I've experienced 
firsthand, most um, closely, this, um, this kind of serving others, leading to a joy and a, and a um, gladness that I wouldn't have had otherwise, actually happens on a short-term missions field. For those of you guys who have ever gone on a trip like this, where you go and you lead a VBS somewhere, or you may be building houses or doing something, um, maybe you can relate to this. But a couple of years ago, when I first started here, actually just before I, I stepped on the staff here, I went on this trip to Tuba City with our youth group. And, um, and at the end of that trip, we were sitting in a circle kind of debriefing, um, and we were sharing about like one thing that we were taking away that we felt like this was like the biggest blessing or the biggest takeaway from this trip. And the thing that impressed me, or that the God was impressing on my heart was just like, Something about being on a trip like this where, you know, every morning you wake up and you have an agenda of like, okay, how am I going to serve the people that are here today, right? You wake up and that's like the thought that's on your mind. And all throughout the day, you're always thinking like, okay, what's next on the agenda? What else can we do to encourage or to, to serve or to love on these kids? Like it, on this particular trip, we were running a VBS and we worked with some of the youth that were there in the evenings. And so all the time, we're just constantly thinking, like, okay, what more can we do? What more can we do? How can we help them? How can we encourage them and love on them? And something about being in that kind of an environment where the whole team, and it was like a group of, well, like 30 of us, of like youth group students and leaders from, from ICC and from Harvest, that all of us were always like putting our heads together, like, okay, how can we pray for these people? How can we love these people? that that mindset just, just drew our hearts together and made it so that our fellowship that we had there was just so much greater than the things that we experience on a daily basis. And so I was telling the students there as we were debriefing, like, honestly, guys, I think that not only on this trip, but on pastors that I've been on too, that this is really a glimpse of what the church is supposed to be. I know that we can't all just, like, quit our jobs and sit around and, like, lead VBS every day and whatever, right? Like, I understand that. This is not going to happen that way. But what I mean is, the, the, the lifestyle of waking up in the mornings and having that mentality of, okay, I'm here with a mission. I'm here as a representative of Christ where I am. What is the work that God has set before me today? How can I go and love on somebody or serve somebody so that they might benefit? How can I keep my eyes peeled so that I can see somebody, even just walking in the street, who looks like they need comfort from someone? How can I go out of my way to try to empathize with others and to understand how they're feeling and what they might be going through in their lives so that I can bring the love of Christ to them? I don't think it's the actual work that we do there that is effective, but it's the attitude and the mentality of going through every day that we're there and saying, like, man, our time here is short. I want to do everything that I can to love on them as maximally as I can in this time that I have here. And we hardly ever do that when we're at home. How often do we wake up in the morning with the mentality of how can I serve someone, love someone today? How often do we come into our churches on Sunday mornings and think about who is sitting in these chairs next to me that might need a touch from the love of Christ today? How can I bring Jesus to this community so that others might be lifted up? How can I keep my eyes peeled so that I can see the hurts and the needs of the people around me? This is especially true between generations. 
for parents, it's hard for parents or adults to see that in the kids. To really remember, to understand what it's like to be a kid sitting in a service like this. Listen to a preacher ramble on for 30 minutes, right? It's like, stop that. Stop. Be quiet. Pay attention, right? How can we learn to empathize with them more? Children, youth group students, how many times in your life, it may be zero, have you ever thought about what the needs are of some of the older members of our congregation here? How often have you thought about, man, what is something that I can do to just bless them or encourage them when I'm there on Sunday? So often we're so wrapped up in thinking about our own needs, our own desires. And some of you guys who are new here, I know that this is so like not PC and like not normal for someone to do, but I know that as a newcomer, that it's easy to sit here and just think like, man, like I hope somebody comes up and says hi to me and, and, and welcomes me and loves on me. And that is right for you to feel that way. And I hope that our church does a good job of doing that. And that you will feel cared for. But I would challenge you and say, how can we come into this, even as somebody who's relatively new to the community, and say, okay, how can I serve here? How can I go out of my way to say hi to somebody else who may be sitting at a table alone during during the fellowship time? or somebody else who looks like they may be hurting. The three ways that Paul has listed for us to live in this sort of grace, to be like-minded, to have this unity, is for us to um, think of the needs of others, to value them more highly than ourselves, right? To give up our rights for the sake of others, to find that there is greater joy and glory in serving and in sacrificing. And all of this is grace. All of it is grace. It is the experience of grace from God that will empower us and enable us to give forth this grace to the rest of the church. And a family built on love is a family that operates under this grace paradigm, which is so countercultural, so counter to our instinct. And look, part of the reason why I'm sharing this with you all this morning where, where we're all gathered as, as families from all the different generations is because I think the family and the church are the perfect place for us to practice and experience this sort of grace. It's often in, in places, in communities where people know, like in our families, our families have are probably the people that have seen our true colors the most, right? They're the people who have, who have seen us at our best and at our worst. And it's because they've seen us at our best and at our worst, because they know us through and through, that sometimes it's the hardest for us to actually be gracious toward them or for them to be gracious toward us, right? And so in our families, these are perfect places for us to be able to practice what it means to give grace, Right? We see all of their faults and their failures, and we see all the ways that they are not living up to what they should be doing. And then we can be gracious toward them. In a church, there's all these people that are drawn here literally because we are just sinners in need of the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what binds us here together, right? And so there may be people that you disagree with, people that you don't like, that you naturally don't get along with. And so those are the people that it is best for us to practice and experience the grace of God to and through. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book, Life Together. He says, every human idealized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broken up so that genuine community can survive. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intention may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Bonhoeffer is basically writing that, like, man, we need to be gracious toward one another. You need to recognize that, okay, all this stuff that I've been talking about where we need to be selfless, we need to lay down our rights, we may be able to, like, we should, to some degree, hold others to that standard too. As a church, we are all, as individuals, being called to that. But we need to know that I'm going to fail, you're going to fail, all of us are going to fail on that at some point, right? That is an ideal, and we can't expect our church to actually be that from week to week. So Bonhoeffer is saying, look, when we do life together, it's messy. It's dirty. It doesn't look perfect. We're never going to be that perfect church. We're never going to come in here and have every other person here looking out for us and us always looking out for others. It's not going to happen that way. So again, we need grace. You guys starting to see a pattern here? We're being called to grace. We've been given grace, and we need to, when we fail, continue to just give grace. I'm going to close with just one story. I don't know how, but um, when I was growing up, I always thought that I was the best of the three boys in my house. (laughs) I'm a middle child. Yeah, middle children. And maybe I had some weird strain of like middle child syndrome because instead of being like sad and depressed about being neglected, I always like, I think I took some pride in feeling like I was um, very like low maintenance and like nobody had to really take care of me. I'll just take care of myself and I'm good, right? (laughs) and so um when i was growing up this is me my older brother on the left my dad right next to me and then my my little brother on the right and um and growing up um my older brother he's two years older than i am i remember when we hit adolescence that something in him like changed okay where he just started like my dad was always disciplinarian but all of a sudden like Every once in a while, he would start, like, shouting back at my dad. And my older brother and I shared a room, like, all throughout our childhood. And so I remember being in the room when my dad would, like, yell at him about something. And then I'm, like, sitting at my desk, like, doing homework or on the computer or something. And then all of a sudden, I hear my older brother starting to raise his voice at my dad. And then, like, I just, like, can't think of anything anymore. I'm, like, sitting there, like, scared out of my mind, like, what in the world is he doing? Like, why did he just go crazy? Like, what is this demon that has possessed my brother? Right? Like, something bad is about to happen. And I didn't know that something like that was possible for us to, like, talk back to him. Like, what? Like, that's not a thing that we do. But my older brother kept on, started to take his stand against my dad and, like, assert his independence, right? And I remember in those moments, sometimes, I, like, I, like, my palms would start getting sweaty. And I couldn't, like, if I was reading or, like, doing homework or something, I couldn't focus on that. So I would, like... But I couldn't, like, watch, right? Like, that's weird for me to, like, sit there and, like, stare at them. So I would just, like, pick a spot on, like, a desk or something and, like, stare at it, right? And, like, <laughs> I don't know what to do. This is, like, so uncomfortable. Like, almost like I was, like, wishing I could, like, teleport into the spot, right? And it was just so, so, so uncomfortable for me. And so growing up, like, that was one of the, the big memories that I had was, like, my older brother was, like, kind of the, the rebellious one, the one that talked back to my dad and had sh- these shouting matches with him. And so he's obviously not as good as I am, right? So that's my dad. He argued with my dad. My little brother, 
was, um, is seven years younger than I am, and he's by far the baby of the house, and so naturally, he's the spoiled one, right? He's got to be the spoiled one. And so I figured, like, it was, like, not even a contest. I'm obviously the best child in the family, right? <laughs> and so that was just my assumption for, like, the first, like, 22, 23, 24 years of my life, like, that they're the troubled ones, and I'm so good, and, like, you're lucky to have me here. But it was, like, a shock to me that one day I heard my dad when we were out with some of his friends, like, he was talking to them about how, like, I was a troubled child. And I was like, what? Like, there's no way. And he looked at me like, right? Like, you know this, right? I'm like, no, I did not know this. I didn't know that you thought that about me. And it blew my mind a little bit. And it wasn't until, like, honestly, like, that I still remember that first moment when he said that and, like, something to me like, he really believes this, that I was a troublemaker in our family. And I had to do some processing of, like, why did he think that? What was it about this that made him feel that way? Well, when I was explaining to you about the flaws of my older brother and my younger brother, the part I left out was that, obviously, I did a lot of dumb things, too, right, when I was growing up, and a lot of disobedient things. But the biggest difference is, two of them, was one, that those things were things that I did and not things that my brothers did. So, of course, they're, like, not as bad, right? But two... And more importantly, I didn't know that my dad knew about those things, right? I thought that I had hid, hidden them from my dad so well that he had no idea that I was doing any of those bad things. So like, in your eyes, I must be awesome, right? So kids, lesson to be learned. Your parents know a lot more than you think that they know, okay? Um, but, <laughs> but so as I, um, <laughs> as I was thinking about this, um, and I had to come to process and come to grips with the fact, like, man, I really was a troublemaker. One of these stories popped into my mind. Um, I'll give you an example of one of the ways that I was bad, okay? Um, Connie and I started dating when I was uh, going, to, going into my freshman year of college. And so um, I remember on the day that I was about to leave for Duke, okay? Actually, my mom was sick at the time. So my dad wasn't going to be able to drive me down. So my aunt, his little younger sister, was um, going to drive with my older brother and me down and get me set up in my dorm. And Kanye and I had just started dating like a month and a half, two months before that. And um, I remember that, mo- that night before I was about to leave that I was like really wanting to see her one more time. Okay? Kids, don't follow this example. Okay? <laughs> so... What happened was um, I went to sleep, and then I woke up really, really, really early in the morning because I knew that my dad wasn't going to let me go out at night, whatever. But I woke up early in the morning. Like, I think I got up at, like, 3.30. And I took a shower, and then I drove over to Connie's house and um, just so that we could spend a little more time together. So I think we just sat there, like, we watched TV, and we, like, were, like, sad and crying. and so, I don't know. It was weird, right? But anyway, um, so, so on my way back, though, I'd only gotten, like, two hours of sleep that night, right? On my way back, for some reason, there was, like, uh, stop-and-go traffic on Willow Road coming back home. So I was like, oh, my gosh, I need to get back before my dad gets up. It was, like, 6 o'clock in the morning, and he was about to get up, and I was like, I was expecting to be home in, like, 20 minutes, and this is going to be, like, 25, 30 minutes, and now I'm stuck in stop-and-go traffic, and I was really, really tired, and so basically what happened was I started nodding off at the wheel, and then I bumped the car in front of me, and then when I woke up, 
my foot had somehow slipped to the gas, and so I stomped on the gas, and I hit the car in front of me again. And then I freaked out. Of course, I was wide awake at this point, and I got out of the car. I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? And the car in front of me was like, there was like a little bit of dent on his, on his fender and stuff like that. And I was freaking out. Like, I gave him my phone number. I was like, I need to get home, though, because my dad's about to be awake. And so I got back in my car, drove home. I was like worried about, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I got home. I was trying to debate, like, oh, should I tell my dad? What am I going to do? Like, how, what is this going to mean for our insurance? I had never gotten an accident before. I didn't know what to do. Didn't even know that we probably should have just paid for this out of pocket and I reported it and not giving them my insurance information and stuff like that. Anyway, so I decided that the smartest thing to do was I'm leaving for school today. I don't want for us to leave on, like, bad terms, like, make the house all angry and, like, like you know, in a bad mood. So I'm going to call my dad from the car on our way down and tell him. I know, the story just gets worse and worse and worse, right? Now you see why I was a troublemaker. So that was what I decided to do. And as we were loading up my, the car, everything was fine. My car didn't have a scratch on it. It was fine. We are loading up the car. And then I realized my fatal mistake. When I had bumped that car, my front license plate had fallen off, and I didn't know. And so my dad, while he was loading up the car, there were no scratches there, but he didn't see the license plate. He's like, what happened to the license plate on the front? And I was like, what? <laughs> My face just felt like, uh. And so, needless to say, he was pretty angry. I went upstairs, and I was like, oh, well, my plan didn't work. I wrote him a letter, and my dad has this letter to this day. <laughs> this is a letter that I wrote to my dad that afternoon when I went back up upstairs after he got mad at me. Basically, all it says is, I'm so sorry, Dad. So sorry that I did this. Sorry that I didn't tell you. I didn't want us to be angry when you were sending me off. And I'm thankful for you. <laughs> and, and I'm hoping you'll forgive me. I'm going to do my best to make you proud when I get down to school. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The reason why I tell you this story is because in my heart, my dad had every right to be through and through, like, so angry with me. I had deceived him not once, twice. I had done something with, you know, snuck out of the house. I had made this departure more difficult, and he was at home taking care of his sick wife, and I was adding more stress to his life and all this stuff, and Still, I remember that day when he was sending me off, the grace that he showed to me. That even in his anger, that when he was sending me off and putting me in the car, that he gave me a hug, he kissed me on the cheek and said, it's okay, I still love you. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that the times when I was most thoroughly convinced of my father's love were not the moments when he was the most proud of me, even though that's important. It wasn't the times when we were on family vacations and having a great time and everything was happy in the house. It's not the time when he worked really hard and supported me with his time and his money. All those things are important, yeah, and they do speak and they shout of his love for me, but the moments when I was able to see his love most clearly were the moments when, he, when I was the most unlovable to him and he still extended grace and love toward me. And so for us as a community, for us to be a family that is built on love, 
means that there needs to be a, a culture of grace here at our church. For us to be able to look at people in their darkest moments, in their greatest flaws, to stare it in the face and say, it's okay, I still love you. To be Jesus to them, to love them the way that Jesus has loved us. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer as we respond to this word. I want to ask you all to just think of one way that you can consider the needs of others above your own. What is a way that we can show the grace of God to others in this community? How can we be the love of Christ to somebody else? And I want to challenge you and say that as we pray this, this this morning, to not just ask it for today, but to say, God, would you shape our church, this community in a way that this becomes more normal for us? That next Sunday morning, let's store up prayers for next Sunday and the Sunday after that and say, on those Sundays, would you wake me up with a heart that wants to serve and to love others, that wants to be selfless, that wants to consider people that are not like me. God, would you build our church into that kind of a church? Father, we pray that you would have your way in this community, that we would experience your grace and your love in a way that profoundly changes our hearts so that we... um, We'll consider others above ourselves. We'll value them more highly than ourselves. We will learn to lay down our rights, the things that we can lay claim to, but we will lay them down for the benefit of others. That we'll be gracious toward one another. From the youngest to the oldest in this room, that we would learn to see things from other people's perspectives so that they might also experience the love of Christ through us and through this church. Father, this is the, this is the work that only you can do that it begins with your grace and is finished by your grace. So we depend on you wholeheartedly, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.